Okay, I've been meaning to do this for quite a while now because my home province, British Columbia, is bringing in a new student reporting order for next school year. I know for the majority of listeners who live outside of my home province of BC, this bonus episode may not be entirely relevant to you, but I do think there are things you'll be able to take away from what I'm about to say. You are, if you're a longtime listener, you are obviously going to hear things you've heard before, uh, maybe several times, but I'm going to say them within the context of BC's new reporting order uh, and, and give it sort of a tight package, if you will, and put it all in one place instead of having to search assessment corner for a number of different concepts. So if you're not from British Columbia and haven't familiarized yourself with the new BC curriculum and or the new reporting order, I would encourage you to do so. I've put links in the show notes for both of those, and maybe right now you want to hit pause and check those out. Just give them a quick skim, or maybe after listening, you give them a look and and it'll bring some context to what I'm about to say. Okay, let's dig in. First, I want to say up front that on the net, I absolutely love what we've done here in BC. It's truly one of the most forward-leaning curricular reforms I've seen anywhere. A focus on competencies where the content becomes the means to the competency end for me is absolutely necessary if our systems are going to modernize for the 21st century. Now, I know this sounds like I'm saying a few nice things up front to soften the blow of some of the critiques I'm going to offer. And in fact, that is exactly what I'm doing. But I want to offer critiques, which I think we can distinguish from criticism. Critiques are normally focused on solutions or refinement, whereas criticism is just focused on blame and judgment and being negative. So critique, this is good, here's how it could be better, versus criticism, being negative, pointing out what's wrong. So I want to offer the following critiques to uh, primarily the Ministry of Education here in BC. They got most of it right, and they really should be applauded for what's happened because you know what no one usually says? This is what you never hear. You never hear somebody say, hey, you know this new mandate or this new curriculum, this new reporting order? It's way better. Uh, Our department or Ministry of Education was spot on with what they brought forward. It's fantastic. Said no one ever. (laughs) So, So I do want to say authentically that I really am feeling very positive about the direction that we're going, but I do want to offer some thoughts as a critique within the context, like I said, of liking most of what's been done. So let's begin with some backstory. We didn't do ourselves any favors when it came to messaging about the new curriculum when it first came into focus a few years back. I'm using the royal we here because I was not personally involved in either developing it or promoting it. I did do a webinar series that essentially was about kind of like, here's what I would do if I were in in your position as a classroom teacher, Uh, but I don't work for the Ministry of Education. I was not employed by them to promote the new curriculum. I, I wasn't involved in any of that. And I think here's where... Many got it wrong from the jump. And I still think the remnants of this are being felt today. I kept hearing people say back in the day and seeing posts on social media that went something like this. They would say, knowledge and content don't matter anymore. It's all about the skills and the competencies. Now, I know those who said that were well-intentioned, but it really was misguided both instructionally and politically. And I'm, I'm using the term politically as small p politics, as in framing the new curriculum and, and winning people over. Not I'm not talking about capital P, like politics and governments and political parties. So let's start with instruction. Content and knowledge are the substance. To think, whether you're thinking critically, collaboratively, creatively, you have to think about something. So content will always be there. Now, here's how I'd reframe it. And this was actually the way I reframed it back when I worked in School District 67 12 years ago maybe even a little bit longer when the ministry first started talking about this. When the ministry first floated the idea of curricular sort of overhaul, I saw it as the means and ends switching places. I'll give you an example. We used to put students into groups to complete group projects, and we we still do that, but when I was a history teacher back in the early 1990s, that's exactly what I did. And we've done that forever. But the goal of that project was really about content acquisition. The collaboration was the means, the content was the end. So in other words, to, in, and to use today's language, back in the 90s, if you will, and even the early part of the 2000s, we used competencies like collaboration to teach you content. Now today, if you wanna talk about the means and end switching places, just flip those. Today, in our new curriculum, the idea would be, we would use content to teach you how to collaborate. We'll use content to teach you how to think critically. We'll use content to teach you how to be creative and innovative, right? 
So if we were teaching someone how to collaborate, we would be explicit about teaching them how to develop roles and responsibilities. We teach them how to use protocols to come to consensus. We teach them how to disagree with one another respectfully. And of course, we teach them how to resolve conflict. Now, we didn't do that back in the 90s. There were very few people doing that. I mean, some probably did, but it may have been sort of haphazard or it, it just may have been an isolated case. We really didn't teach the competencies explicitly. Now, each needs the other. The content needs the competencies and the competencies need the content. Because when you look at the new BC curriculum, both the content and competencies are incomplete on their own. The content lacks any cognitive complexity. On its own, the content is just a list of topics. It says things like the Pythagorean relationship. Okay, what am I supposed to do with that? Am I supposed to know that exists? Am I supposed to calculate it? Am I supposed to problem solve? What, right? You can't know how to do that. And that's a problem if you're only focusing on the content because without any cognitive complexity or identified depth of thinking, you can't know how to teach that content or how to assess it. It's the cognitive complexity that allows us to choose the right assessment method and it allows us to know the depth of thinking required and the depth to which our, che our teaching has to go to as well. So any teacher in BC who is saying, well, I just still focus on the content is almost certainly relying on what they used to do under the old curriculum. The content lacks the cognitive rigor and the depth of thinking, right? So where do you find that? You find that in the curricular competencies. In the curricular competencies, you're going to see the cognitive rigor and the depth of thinking. You'll see words like analyze and create and evaluate and identify and determine. Those are the words that provide us with the cognitive rigor. Those are the verbs. And beyond the verbs or behind the verbs, you'll get the depth of thinking or what many often refer to as the DOK or the depth of knowledge level. And that comes from Norman Webb's model. The competencies themselves, however, they lack substance. They are important skills. And, and they're important competencies, of course, but without content, they're a little bit hollow, right? They'll say things like, use mental math strategies. It's like, okay, well, what mental math am I doing? So when you're thinking critically, creatively, and reflectively, uh, when you're thinking about exploring ideas, uh, like one of the competencies is to think critically, creatively, and reflectively to explore ideas within, between, and beyond texts. What texts? Fiction? Nonfiction? What texts are we using? Right? So each needs the other. The competence needs, competencies need the content. The content needs the competencies because the competencies without content are fluff. The content without competencies become trivia. But the competencies with the content becomes 21st century learning. So instructionally, the messaging was poor by some who are going around saying content doesn't matter anymore because content definitely matters. Now, let's talk politically. Again, small p politics, not political parties or anything like that. But from a small p political perspective, it was also poor because many teachers love their content. Now, I know this, there's this caricature that if you love your content, you're not student focused. And this is, one, again, one of those false dichotomies, the idea that you have to either love your students or love your content. I'm, I'm sorry, you can do both. Okay, now, yes, there are those that live on the extreme edges, of course, um, who may love their content a little bit too much. But the vast majority of teachers can, as the expression goes, walk and chew gum. I can love my content and love teaching my students. You have so many teachers in the system who are content specialists. They love science. They love PE. They love art. They love math. They love English. They love their subjects. And now they're hearing from their colleagues or from the ministry or something in the media. They're suddenly hearing that their content doesn't matter anymore. Did we really think that was going to win people over? that a high school or a middle school teacher especially would just go, oh, okay, cool. Uh, the subject I've been teaching for so many years doesn't matter anymore. Excellent. Sign me up. I mean, that messaging alone caused so much pushback, and, and rightly so, because the assertion was ridiculous, as I just talked about. Ushering in a new curriculum itself is challenging enough without alienating a huge portion of the teaching population in the province. Now, having said all of that, content specialists, 
do need to wrap their heads around the idea that content knowledge is now searchable in most cases and is readily available, probably as, as it ever has been. So we have to be mindful of that. Things are going to shift, you know. I think the fact that, you know, content is searchable and readily available, it should excite us because now the foundational information needed to think more deeply is accessible and very little needs to be memorized. We just live in a different era. So on the one hand, please stop telling content specialists their content is irrelevant, okay? That's, that's poor messaging and it's really not true. But on the other hand, content specialists, you do need to come to terms with the fact that it's 2023 and technology has allowed for an efficient and effective access to information. And that's where the competencies come in. One of the most important skills of the 21st century is being able to think critically, especially about the flood of information we all have access to. Any Google search is going to produce 4,000 answers that are perfect for your question. Now, how do you know which websites to trust? How, how can you spot the fake news, right? So accessing or knowing is no longer the issue. The issue is determining the credibility of the information we have access to. Can you trust it? That's why the competencies are so important. We're using content to teach you to think critically. Now, one final point before we get into some of the issues around reporting. In BC, there is a distinction made between the core competencies and the curricular competencies. And I just want to say they are the same, okay? They're not different. They are sort of different iterations, but they're essentially the same. Think of it this way. The curricular competencies are just the core competencies put into context within a specific subject or discipline. So the question around the competencies that are the curricular competencies would be, what does critical thinking look like in math or science or English or, or PE or whatever subject we're talking about? That's where I would, if I was a classroom teacher, that's where I'd put all of my attention for marking, grading, assessing, and teaching. I would teach the curricular competencies, okay? Because the curricular competencies are just putting the core competencies into context. And that's important because much of the research around competencies, especially when it comes to critical thinking, is that critical thinking is best taught within a subject discipline because my content knowledge will play a role in how deeply I can think about something. I mean, that seem, seems obvious, and I was just talking about how important the content is. Now, let's reverse it. The core competencies are just the curricular competencies synthesized. Now, that's where I put the student's focus, and that's where the student's focus will be. The students will be the ones self-assessing on the core competencies, right? So we would ask students to assess themselves. Like, for example, we'd say, how, how are you doing with critical thinking? And they would make an assertion about the degree to which they are an effective critical thinker. But that assertion would need to be substantiated because you can't just self-assess without evidence. So as the student self-assesses, if they felt they were a strong critical thinker, then the evidence to support the claim would be drawn from one of their classes, right? So the core competency is just a curricular competency synthesized. So if a student is saying, hey, I'm a more effective critical thinker than I used to be, and if a teacher were to ask, well, what makes you say that? The student might say, well, one example was in math where I was able to, and they might even quote the competency, when we explored or analyzed or applied functions and relations using reasoning and technology and other tools, I actually got really effective at that. I got, I got better at that. And then they might give some examples of specific things that they did and how they grew from there. If it was PE, for example, the student might say, I'm a more effective critical thinker because I feel like I can analyze and explain the way that messages influence health and well-being because we did this project on the influence of media, especially social media. And of course, then they would give details about what played out in that project. So the core competencies and the curricular competencies are, are not different. The curricular competencies are just the core competencies put into context. The core competencies are just the curricular competencies synthesized, right? Now, I went through all of that because for me and, and for teachers, the new reporting order should be anchored, as far as I'm concerned, should be anchored on those curricular competencies. And for students, we anchor them on the core competencies, okay? So let's take a, a quick pause here and, uh, and begin to talk about the new reporting order and some of the important aspects of that order that I think need to be addressed.
Okay, let's move on to the reporting order. We were so close. We almost had it. It was right there. And then I don't know what happened. Someone, some group, someone got cold feet and couldn't let go of percentage-based grades for grades 10 to 12. Now, here's a quick outline of what's in the reporting order, just some highlights. And, and again, there's a link in the show notes for this. But what's new um, is that, of course, the reporting practices are going to ally, align with BC's curriculum and the assessment system. Um, we're really trying to emphasize and focus in terms of policies on timely and responsive feedback on student learning that parents can understand, so accessible. Uh, the provincial proficiency scale will be used from grades K to 9. I'm going to talk about that scale uh, later on. Um, there's graduation status updates at grade 10 to 12, student self-assessment and goal setting in all grades in three written reports, uh, in the three written reports, I should say, and uh, changing the I in the reporting symbol to IE to denote insufficient evidence uh, instead of incomplete. Uh, and all learners, uh, including students with disabilities or diverse abilities, will receive regular communications of student learning in the same way uh, as their peers in any other program. So a lot of good stuff there for sure to, to celebrate. What, what's remaining the same is five communications of student learning, three written and two of a flexible format, uh, written uh, descriptive feedback to a, a company, a scale or a letter grade or percentage, and unfortunately, letter grades and percentages at grades 10 to 12. Ugh, okay. Yeah, we almost had it. Ah, that last one, letter grades and percentages at grades 10 to 12. I, I, I don't know, honestly, what it is. There is almost a cult-like obsession that some have about percentage-based grades. And for the life of me, I can't figure out why. Go read any of the competencies, the curricular competencies, and tell me how you would judge them in a binary fashion of right, wrong, or can, can't, or some sort of percentage. The vast majority of the curricular competencies are most effectively assessed using a rubric because rubrics describe levels of quality, right? Analyze and explain how health messages might influence health and well-being. Yeah, sure, 92%. I mean, it's just, it's it's a ridiculous assertion. It's such a superficial way to assess. So we're there, we're on the we're on the, the cusp of it, but we, we sort of stop short. Using the BC proficiency scale, we would be able to say the student has an initial understanding, a partial understanding, a complete understanding, or a sophisticated understanding. And of course, we'll talk more about the scale. And there's details around each of those levels, but right, wrong is not how you judge more sophisticated learning. Uh, only the most binary and the most pedestrian sort of learning outcomes can be judged on a percentage scale. Now, I know many are going to, I can hear you <laughs> in advance uh, listening right now, because there's going to be people out there who are going to say, well, the universities need percentage-based grades. They do? Huh. The last time I checked, the universities in British Columbia and those throughout Canada and the United States they accept international students. Not all international students have percentage-based grades. I hate to break it to you, but there are international kids who get into some of the top schools in Canada and the United States, and believe it or not, no percentage-based grade. The International Baccalaureate Program, IB, some would argue the most rigorous and prestigious K-12 academic program on the planet, implemented worldwide grades their students on a one through seven scale. Just a hunch. I think those students are being admitted to universities and doing so without percentage-based grades. In the United States, of course, you have advanced placement graded on five levels. France, I think it's 20 levels. I mean, to do standards-based grading, it only requires two things. Standards, right? And obviously that's in the name. Standards-based grading means grades based on standards. Now in Canada, we've used the term outcome for, for years instead of standards. It essentially means the same thing. The new BC curriculum, however, actually uses the word standards. And I honestly just roll my eyes and bite my tongue when I hear a Canadian say, standards, oh, that's an American term. It's, it's an it's a, it's a English word is what it is. But again, as I said, there is almost this cult-like obsession with percentage-based grades, and I can't for the life of me figure out why, other than three things. 
it's it's either arrogance, it's ego, or it's fear. Let's start with arrogance. The arrogant part of this, and I hate to be so sort of harsh, but the idea that any teacher on this planet could distinguish between 101 levels of performance, not including decimal places, by the way, is absurd. If I were to walk into any classroom and ask somebody to describe the difference in quality between an 82 and an 87, they probably couldn't do it. I wouldn't expect them to be able to do it. 101 levels. Assessment of our curricular competencies, these sophisticated learning goals, is really about quality, not counting. Counting, at best, gives you an incomplete view of the learner, and I use this example in workshops all the time. Imagine you've got two students who score 15 out of 20, on an assessment. Two students get the same score. That score on the surface would result in a 75%. Okay? But here's the story. One of the students who scored a 15 out of 20 left five questions blank, had no idea how to answer those questions, conceptually did not know what to do, had plenty of time, but didn't know what to do. 15 out of 20. Another student scores 15 out of 20, but they answered all 20 questions. And conceptually, they actually knew how to answer all 20 questions, but they made five very simple mistakes and they ended up with the wrong answer. So for example, they may have looked at, you know, four times three became seven instead of 12. They just, they just made a simple mistake. They're not the same. Their depth of understanding or the quality of evidence they produced is not the same, but on the surface, they would both get a 75%. Like To say that they're in the same place as learners is to look only at a very narrow part of the outcome. To determine any interventions, we'd actually have to examine the type of errors that they made. Again, as I said, only the most pedestrian of learning outcomes can be reduced to a percentage where you're counting right and wrong. So this idea, it, it really just, it's, it's a reach to think that anybody... I, and I would never ask a teacher to do this because there's, there's, it'd be impossible. Describe for me 101 distinct levels of quality. Impossibility. So that's the arrogant part of it. And really, I'm just talking about those who have this cult-like obsession with percentage-based grades. Let's talk about ego. Now, ego is about separation. It isn't, it's a little bit different than arrogance because ego doesn't have to necessarily mean I'm better than you. It could actually mean I'm worse. It, all ego really is, is I'm different, right? So having a great variety of grades allows for ranking and sorting and separation. Now, I do, to a point, understand why students and families want the ability to compare and sort and am I, how am I doing compared to my classmates and all that. I mean, I don't support that and I'm not a big fan of that. And I don't think we should be tailoring our assessment systems to simply what families and students want if it's not sound practice and the research doesn't support it. But, but I understand why students and families are thinking that way. But why educators are so obsessed with comparing students to students and ranking them or sorting them is beyond me. Again, despite what some would have you believe, our job is actually not to do the university or college admissions process for them. That's their job. It's up to the universities to decide who to admit. They have whole offices and employees that are dedicated to figuring out who should be admitted to their schools. Our job, especially in a public school system, but I mean, you could make the argument in a private school system too. Our job is to ensure that each and every learner maximizes their potential. You see, it's a, it's a bit of a contradiction in the system if on the one hand we're saying all learners need an equitable access to high levels of intellectual performance, they need access to maximize their potential, all means all, but then on the other hand, we contradict ourselves by saying, but we need to rank and sort them for the universities as if we're waiting for the universities to bestow upon us their approval. Like, thank you for doing our job for us. You know what we need to do here in British Columbia? We need to make sure that there are too many students that are qualified to get into UBC, SFU, the other universities, and that make the university entrance job difficult. That, that's really what our goal should be. If kids choose to go to university or not, the point is we've maximized their opportunities, right? Ranking and sorting requires variation in grading. Think of it this way. 
ranking and sorting depends on some students not doing well. Whereas all means all is driven by the idea that we want all of them to excel. But you see, if they all excel, there's no way for us to separate and sort them. You see the contradiction? Having a system that relies on some students underperforming or doing poorly, that seems a little bit suspect. Now again, some will challenge that notion and assert, well, it's not realistic, Tom, to think that all students will excel. And that is, in reality, probably true. But I, for one, am not going to predetermine who will or won't. And I'm certainly not going to create a system that ensures that separation in an unreliable way. Now, I'm going to come back to that in a few minutes, this lack of reliability. What's worse with percentage-based grades is the inconsistency with which they are determined. Now, long-time listeners know what's coming because you, you've heard me say this many, many times, and you can probably say it with me. Over 100 years of research asking the question, when teachers are asked to assess student performance by judging its quality and assigning a 0 to 100 score, so this is in the case where they're doing an indirect scoring inference. So the difference being with the first example I gave, 15 out of 20, we're counting right and wrong. But would you, when you read an essay or you read a research paper or something like that, you're not counting right and wrong, you're judging quality. So 100 plus years of research, judge quality on an essay, then assign a 0 to 100 score. As of 2019, again, long-time listeners, you know what's coming, the margin of error amongst teachers landed at plus or minus 5 to 6 points. In other words, it's a 10 to 12 point window. So practically speaking, if we gave three English teachers the same essay to read, you could expect one of them to say, I think this is a 74, one of them to say, I think this is an 80, and one to say, I think this is an 86. The system, the percentage system, perpetuates the unacceptable idea that a student's grade be dependent upon who their teacher is. We have one provincial curriculum, right? No parent, no family, no guardian would accept the idea that if I took a body of evidence their child produced from one class, it would be an A. But if I took it to another teacher in the same grade level subject in the same school, it would be a B. Now, I understand we can't control this across the province. It's impossible to get every teacher together to calibrate. And even in some very large districts, it would be very difficult. And then I suppose some might say, well, well, if we can't control it, why worry about it? But can we at least try to create some reliability? So again, reliability in assessment always means consistency. Can we at least try to first be reliable within the same school? And then maybe within the district, if it's a smaller district, that's definitely doable. If it's a larger district, especially with the curricular competencies that are high priority, we, we want to calibrate on that, right? Maybe it isn't attainable across the province, but does that mean we shouldn't try? We should just give up on that? Some consistency has to be, some reliability has to be better than none. It's got to be worked on. Like we have to calibrate on criteria because we need to gain access to our colleagues' perspectives and their expertise to ensure that we've got as much alignment as possible. So the answer is clear in the research. To achieve reliability or consistency, we need two things. We need fewer, more clearly discernible levels, and we need grades that are based upon clearly articulated success criteria, right? So if you want fewer, more clearly discernible levels and grades to be based on clearly articulated success criteria, the move to a proficiency scale here in BC is unquestionably the right move. Now, again, I know that students, families, some teachers, admin, like you may not be familiar with all of that research and that's okay. I mean, we, we can't know all of the research about everything. If you don't know about that research, you don't know and that's, and that's fine, right? Like I said, students, families may not know about it. That's all, it's all fine. It's no problem. We, we can't know everything about everything. However, <laughs> to act like this stuff just fell out of the sky is ridiculous. Just because you didn't know about this research, which again is fine, it doesn't discredit its findings. So we have arrogance and we got the ego of the cult-like obsession with percentage-based grades. Keeping percentages in grades 10 to 12 was a big swing and a miss on the part of the Ministry of Education here in BC. It just was. And we had an opportunity and maybe there's plans down the road. I'm not familiar with them, and, and I, I don't know that. 
but I and I hope there are plans to to change that down the road. Uh, but it's unfortunate as we sit here today. Now, the third one I mentioned was fear, and this is one that I completely understand uh, and have a lot of of empathy and sympathy for. If if as a teacher you're not used to using your professional judgment, then moving to a proficiency-based grading can be quite daunting. I get that. It it requires us to use our professional judgment. And again, if you're not used to that um, and your entire assessment system has been prior based on counting right from wrong, then beginning to use your judgment can be quite intimidating. I get that. Uh, My friends uh, and colleagues, Tom Guskey and Leanne Young, wrote an article a number of years ago talking about professional judgment. And one of the points they made quite strongly in the article was that often teachers don't trust their own professional judgment because they don't know if their colleagues would make a similar decision given the same body of evidence. So using our professional judgment is something we have to get used to doing. Uh, and, And I know that many teachers do that already. Uh, But I also understand how intimidating that can be because at some point you will likely have to defend your judgment. Uh, But that to me is what the difference is between a profession and and a J-O-B. The the difference is for me, professional judgment. So I'm I'm really feeling like here in BC and maybe maybe throughout North America and, and, and elsewhere, we need to recapture our professional judgment because we're actually more qualified and an expert at it than we give ourselves credit for it. Let me give you an example. And and this is just, I'm going to throw a few numbers at you here and you can verify the math if you want to. But I I want to just throw a few examples of here. Let's let's say we've got a teacher that's been teaching for 15 years. Let's say a high school teacher had been teaching for 15 years. And in the course of a school year, they teach seven out of eight periods. Okay, so they teach seven classes a year. And each of those classes has 30 students in that class. So in any given school year, they're going to have 210 students. Now those 210 students, I'm just gonna I'm gonna lowball this a little bit probably, but it, it could be spot on. Those 210 students are each going to produce 25 assignments. And I, I feel that's probably a little bit conservative, but maybe, but maybe it's spot on. They're each going to produce 25 assignments uh, that need to be graded in, in one school year. That is 5,250 assignments. It's 210 students times 25. Now that teacher over the course of a 15-year career would have consumed 78,750 total assignments. And now that doesn't even include the, the formative assessment and all of the feedback and all the stuff that's not graded. You will never convince me that a teacher having consumed almost 79,000 student samples doesn't have the expertise to judge quality, especially if we're asking you to judge quality along four clearly distinguishable levels. We have the expertise to do that. Even if they'd only consumed a quarter of that, it would be 20,000 student samples. It's still enough, right? After four years, you would have consumed around 20,000 assignments. But still, new teachers, of course, would need their colleagues to help calibrate, and that's how we build their professional expertise. But we are more expert, and our professional judgments are valid. That's why I find it so frustrating when people say the Ministry of Education needs to provide us with examples of quality looks like. Now, I'm not saying exemplars from from the ministry wouldn't be helpful, um, but I think too often we downplay our expertise and our experience, and we need to recapture that a little bit. Um, but again, I just I want to reiterate, I completely understand the fear of using professional judgment if you've never done that before, or if you don't feel like you have the experience. So as far as I'm concerned, arrogance and ego can be dismissed rather quickly because I think they're ridiculous, and if we're going to cling to these percentage-based grades, um, you know, I, I can dismiss that rather quickly. But I do understand the fear of having to defend your professional judgment if you've never done that before. Okay, so let's take another break. And when we come back, I'm going to dig into why this became a focus of this bonus episode when we talk about using our professional judgment. I'm going to get to the point now and get to some of the critiques I have uh, when we come back. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcasts. Now let's get back to the episode. Okay, so let's talk about the proficiency scale and then get into the crux of what I think is problematic. 
the proficiency scale has four levels of performance, emerging, developing, proficient, and extending. Emerging is essentially defined that a student has an initial understanding of the learning, developing, they have a partial understanding. Proficiency is about a complete understanding and extending is about a sophisticated understanding. Now, I'm not a fan of two of the four words they use to label each of those levels. I don't love the word emerging, and I don't love the word extending. Now, to be clear, these are just personal preferences of mine, nothing more. Words are just words. They're symbols, they're letters, they're labels. Uh, That's fine. I do actually love how each of the levels is described, right? that that's the part right it's the initial and there's and you can go to the website and you can see how it's i don't want to read them all to you here and that's actually more important how the levels are defined matters much more than the symbols or the words that are used to label each level some people get caught up in arguing about those words or those levels or those symbols they're not that important what we need to know is what they mean that matters the most but this is where things went sideways on the ministry website there's an information brochure for parents and caregivers that outlines the new reporting order. It's one of the pieces, like one of the pieces of it um, that I think is really unfortunate. And it's the big, bold red letters in the middle of it. They outline the proficiency scale. They say emerging means your child is beginning to understand something in an area of learning. Developing means your child understands some things in the area of learning, but still has other areas to work on. Uh, Extending is where the students show a deeper understanding and proficiency is when your child is proficient. It means they fully understand the required learning. And in big, bold red red letters at the top, they say proficient is the goal for your child. The third of the fourth level. I think this is a big mistake and it's only going to serve to make things more confusing for parents for caregivers, for students, and probably more confusing for teachers. Again, as I mentioned earlier, a rubric describes gradations of quality. And you have learning outcomes, you know, what we call curricular competencies, that are quite cognitively rigorous and sophisticated. Like there's not one finite destination, but rather degrees of quality. To say that proficient is the goal when there are four levels is problematic. Most students because I think this is human nature, most students are going to want to strive for that top level. Now, to be clear, the research, as I mentioned earlier, says fewer, more clearly discernible levels, but it does not dictate how many levels. There's no requirement or research that says we have to have four. But if we're going to have four levels, then it would be my view that we need to teach to the top level. We need to teach to excellence and sophistication. Now, that doesn't guarantee that every student will reach that level, And I understand the sentiment of the document in that we don't want students feeling less than because they've reached a level of proficiency rather than a level of sophistication. So when they're proficient versus extending, we don't want them feeling less than. But in advance of instruction, our goal for all students should be sophistication and excellence. That top level can't be a mystery or inaccessible to some learners. I honestly can't count how many times I have heard students and families express frustration over the fact that they don't know how to get to that top level. Now, I'm talking about outside of BC. I've heard this throughout North America, and I've heard this in overseas schools within which I've worked, where the three or the proficient is claimed to be the goal. But then there's this fourth level that seems to be somewhat mysterious. And even worse, it's up to the student to figure out how to get to that level of sophistication which more often than not leaves them feeling frustrated and unclear. And and that's the key, feeling completely unclear about what it takes to get to that top level. It also creates a situation where teachers wrongly reserve that top level for those truly special performances or demonstrations. So rather than having all students strive to have access to excellence, we carve out this little niche for only those students who can crack the code, so to speak. Now, this is is often not done intentionally by teachers. And when you create a scale that looks like that, it's going to emerge when you say proficient is the goal. Now, I get what people are saying, but if we have a level that's sophistication or excellence, then why are we not teaching all students to have the potential to get there? 
This, like I said, it happens inadvertently. I don't think teachers are doing this on purpose. But when you create a system that says the second level from the top is the goal, this is going to be a natural byproduct of it. Now, one of the things that everyone needs to guard against, and by everyone I mean teachers, administrators, students, families, stakeholders, everything. One thing that we're going to have to guard against is allowing a bell curve or a curving mindset to infiltrate our assessment systems. Bell curves tend to be about two things, right? That which is random and that which is, of course, accomplished by comparing students to students. In a system that compares students to students, what we often refer to as a norm-referenced assessment, 50% of the kids are always going to be below average because that's how bell curves work. You have a small number of students at the top, you have a small number of students at the bottom, and they have the majority in the middle. That's a norming process or a norm-referenced assessment. In that system, you don't expect there to be a large number of students at the top level. But that's not what we do in assessment or what we should be doing at the, in, a, in any classroom in 2023. What we do is criterion referencing. Criterion referencing involves setting criteria, of course, and assessing each student against the established criteria. There is no comparison of student to student. Rather, the comparison is the student's performance against the predetermined criteria. That is a system that has theoretically been in place for a generation or more when we moved to curricular outcomes or standards in the 1990s. We really should have shifted our assessment focus from norming to criterion referencing. Now, some did. Most did. Most have, I, I would think, to some degree. Um, but the remnants of that mindset of norming still linger within our system. And the mindset emerges when there is a thought that we can't have too many kids at the top level. You can't look at a criterion referenced result with a bell curve mindset. If we actually accomplished our goal of having all students reach high levels of performance or levels of excellence, a norming mindset would see those results as grade inflation. Like from a norming perspective, there would be too many students at the top. The argument about too many students at the top is irrelevant in a criterion reference system. Establishing rigorous criteria ahead of any demonstration of learning allows each and every student to know exactly what it takes to reach the high levels of performance. There is, for example, sophisticated writing. There is competent writing. There is developing writing. And there is writing that is initially or minimally acceptable. They are all versions of correctness. And again, I know some people will balk at the idea that emerging equals a pass, but I'll remind educators in British Columbia that a 51 is also a pass. A 51 in no way indicates a level of proficiency or competence with any learning outcome, but it was a minimally acceptable level of performance. And given the fact that the reporting order for grades 10 to 12 you know, is still in place, a 51 is an acceptable level of performance in grades 10 to 12. If you can think of each level as a version of quality, with the top level being the most sophisticated level of performance, why in the world would we not strive to have each and every student reach that level? Again, I, I'm not naive to the fact that some students may not reach that level of performance, but when you teach to the top level, the students who fall short of that know exactly why. Because each of the levels would clearly describe a version of quality. If extending is treated as something above and beyond, or even worse, the students have to figure it out, then we're only feeding into levels of inequity and implicit bias. Like for some reason, there seems to be this sentiment that we have to have another level for those students who are above and beyond. They are truly special. Does that sound like a little bit like ego? Like where would it end? If we have a student in grade eight who writes like a grade 10 student, then we might say that they are extending. But under this above and beyond mindset, is that fair to the grade 8 student who writes like a grade 11 student? What about the grade 8 student who writes like a grade 12 student? How about the one who writes like a second semester grade 12 student? How about the ones who write like college students or university students or adults? Where does it end? Do we have to create all these little special categories of finite distinction? Doesn't that sound a little bit like the percentage system? For what purpose? Ego? 
there, there is nothing inherently wrong with saying two students reached a level of excellence, even if their demonstrations are not identical. The more categories we create, the less reliable our grades and marks will be. That is a fundamental principle of measurement, specifically to do with reliability. That, that is longstanding uh, in, in the work around reliability. The more categories you create, the less consistency you will have. If we set, if we set out with a mindset that all of our students have the capacity to reach high levels of intellectual performance, then every student has the opportunity to maximize their potential. Now, it is true that some students are going to need a disproportionate amount of support, a disproportionate amount of time in order to reach those levels of sophistication. And we certainly have to be mindful of students with identified special needs or uh, circumstances for whom levels of sophistication may be an unreasonable ask. I get that. But for the most, and those are exceptions to the rule, but for the most part, all learners are capable of reaching high levels of intellectual performance. Now, it clearly depends on three things, effective instruction, the right amount of support to allow the learner the opportunity to reach that level of performance, and of course, the students themselves have to lean into the learning and give it their full attention and their full effort. I think it's really important to separate the forethought from the reflection, like the forethought being ahead of instruction, not one ounce of us should be thinking, oh, these students can't do it, or these students won't be able to reach sophistication. If we don't believe they can, then they probably won't. Now, after the fact, I understand that upon reflection, we may look at the results and realize that there are reasons why some students may have fallen short of the expectations of sophistication. That's different than starting with the premise that our goal for you is to be less than the top level of the scale. Those are two completely different things. And I think our Ministry of Education could have crafted language that made it a little bit more clear that proficiency is still a good performance, but that the goal for all learners is to reach high levels of performance because I, for one, am not comfortable with this idea of predetermining that some kids can't do it. You know, again, outside, of course, of any students for whom the expectations would be an unreasonable ask, given their identified special need or their extenuating circumstances. Now, in the ministry document, it says something that, again, I think the language could be cleaned up here because it says proficient. It means they fully understand the required learning, but it doesn't mean their learning stops. I, I fully understand that, um, but again... It's a finite destination that doesn't really work with levels of quality. First, you know, competence and sophistication are both fully understands, right? So if you have proficiency and you have competence, if you are extending and you have sophistication, they both fully understand. It's, it's about quality that we're talking about. The second, it's a bit of a contradiction because to say proficient is the goal but then to say it doesn't mean their learning stops is only going to create some contradiction within the system. And there's going to be confusion. Is proficient the goal or is it not? After all, the Ministry of Education says proficient is the goal for the students. So if they reach the goal of being proficiency, given that language, I guess why shouldn't they stop? But at the same time, we don't want the learning to stop. You see, so the language is confusing and, and contradictory. The, the Ministry of Education's own brochure to parents states clearly, extending is not the goal for all students in every area of learning. So again, I ask the question, which is it? It doesn't mean their learning stops, or does it mean their learning stops? Or does it only stop for some students, but not for others? For you, the learning stops here because we don't think you're capable of getting to that higher level of performance. But for you over here, your learning is going to continue. Here's an idea. What if we just created an instructional context where every student had the opportunity to reach the highest level of performance, the highest level of sophistication? Again, there's so much about the reporting order that I like. I really do. Using performance levels, K to nine, love it. Focusing on effective feedback, love it. Having students self-assess the core competencies, all of it. I, there's, there's so much about it that I really like. But We've still got a ways to go. The big one, of course, is the elimination of percentage-based grades at grades 10 to 12. That, that's what's needed. We need to stop 
listening to the fear mongering that some students or not students, but, but some uh, educators, families, we need to stop this fear mongering that people try to stir up when they say, well, if we don't use percentage based grades, our kids won't get into university. Again, first to reiterate, students from all over the world get into universities without percentage based grades. So that's a fallacy. And second, and this is more importantly and more specific to British Columbia, does anybody really believe that all of the universities in British Columbia would band together and refuse to admit any student from British Columbia because they don't like the looks of the transcript? In British Columbia, according to a StatsCan report that was posted on BC Federation of Students' website, the provincial government funds about 53% of the university's budgets in British Columbia. So given that dynamic, given the fact that the universities are funded by the provincial government, Given that dynamic, do we really think that the publicly funded universities in British Columbia, funded by taxpayer dollars, would have the authority or the political juice to refuse every single student from British Columbia because they don't like the looks of their transcript? I think the provincial government, on behalf of the taxpaying citizens, would have a lot to say about that. Like I said, look, there is so much to like about the curricular overhaul that has happened here in British Columbia over the past decade or more. It is truly one of the most forward-thinking, forward-focused curriculum revisions I've seen every, anywhere. And the new reporting order is a major step in the right direction. But until we let go of this percentage-based obsession, we're still going to fall short of the kind of transformation that our assessment systems need here in British Columbia.